Psalm 110 is classified as a messianic psalm that speaks of Jesus as both king and priest. Nelson's commentary says Psalm 110 is one of the most directly messianic of all the Psalms. The new treasury of scripture knowledge says it is evident that it can only refer as the ancient Jews fully acknowledged to the royal dignity, priesthood, victories, and triumphs of the Messiah. So in other words, what it's stating is as a lot of um, prophecy would have a near fulfillment and then a far fulfillment. So the near fulfillment being something uh, like it, it would have something to do with the, the king of Israel or Judah at that time, but then uh, have its greater fulfillment in Jesus. Uh, what the treasury of scripture knowledge is saying is that Psalm 110 exclusively is written as prophecy and having the fulfillment there. So by the way, the treasury of scripture knowledge, that's a neat book. It's filled with pretty much nothing but cross-references. And so <clears throat> you know how you have cross-references in your Bible. So like in the center margin, you might have other scripture passages and little, little uh, letters that are, are shooting that to another place and um, giving you other places where the passage is uh, quoted or maybe something similar that is being said to it in other passages of the Bible. So the treasury of scripture knowledge, it's, it's almost exclusively cross-references. So it's just, it just exhausts really other places in the Bible uh, where that passage would be quoted or, or where it would be alluding, uh, being uh, alluded to. And to me, that's the coolest thing because that's where the Bible is, is commenting on itself, if you will. That's one of the things I like the best. And when I'm preparing for the, a message, that's one of the things that I like to do is just look where else in the Bible is this passage uh, being quoted or referred to or alluded back to. And that to me is one of the best ways to be able to understand what the Bible has to say because it is the best commentary on itself. So anyway, it's their opinion though uh, that this Psalm is exclusively speaking of the Messiah. Uh, speaking of prophecy, after Jesus' resurrection, when he was with his disciples in Luke 24, 44, he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. The things that he had been sharing with them, his life, his ministry, his upcoming death and resurrection after he's risen from the dead. He says, these are the things and they had to be fulfilled, the things that were written in the Old Testament, the law of the prophets, and he specifically mentions the book of Psalms. Wycliffe's commentary says the Psalms are quoted more frequently in the New Testament than any other book of the Old Testament. The Prophecy Study Bible says Psalm 110 is the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament. And so it goes on to say 25 times verses one and four alone are referred to, and it doesn't account to uh, the illusions of his second coming conquest in the book of Revelation. And, you know, I thought about that. And as, you know, I look at Psalm 110, um, which parts of it are going to be very familiar. I, I can think of, you know, three or four places where it's being quoted in the New Testament. 
But it wasn't until I really started digging in and looking up all of the cross-references where you can see uh, elements of it, like uh, um, I'm, uh, I'm going to make your enemies your footstool and sit here at my right hand, and you can, you can see where it's being referred to just uh, a number of times as we go through. So Psalm 110, again, messianic, speaks of Jesus as the king and our great high priest. So let's go ahead and read through it in its entirety. Psalm 110, a Psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. It's a powerful psalm that speaks about the victories of our conquering king. In the superscription, in the title, it says that it is a psalm of David. David, uh, the greatest king of Israel, he wrote the lion's share of the psalms. He didn't read, uh, write all of them. There's a number of orphan psalms and, and a handful of psalms that were written by others, but he definitely wrote the majority of them. And, and here in our title, it says that it is a Psalm of David. Jesus, when he's quoting Psalm 110, he identifies David as the writer, but he also identifies the Holy Spirit as the divine author of this Psalm. In Mark chapter 12, verse 36, Jesus said, for David himself, notice said by the Holy Spirit, and then our passage here. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus is not only identifying David as the human author, but notice he's saying that David spoke this by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit, that God himself is the divine author of what is being stated. And that's what's referred to as the internal witness of the Bible. In other words, when you look at, at this book and we're saying, well, this is the word of God. We believe this is God's word. Well, does the Bible ever say that about itself? And the answer is yes, it does say that about itself. And uh, just right here with Jesus mentioning David is the author and that the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired him to say it. In fact, one of the passages, and I didn't put it up on the screen, but one of the key passages for that internal witness of the Bible it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it goes on to say, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So all scripture, not part of scripture, but all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Theos, neustos, the Greek word for God, theo and neustos, the word for breath, the word for wind, the word for spirit. The idea is God breathed through these 40 human authors that wrote the Bible exactly what he wanted to say. 
and he gave us his exact words, every jot, every tittle that we have here. And so is there an external witness to the Bible? Absolutely, but there's also an internal witness that the Bible itself claims to be the word of God. And I think of the hundreds of times that the prophet said, thus says the Lord. This is God's word being spoken forth. And so Jesus, as he quotes this, he again identifies David as the human author and the Holy Spirit as the divine author behind the scriptures. And it says here in verse one, the Lord said to my Lord. Now, before we get to what he said, let's talk about the two words that are translated Lord here. As you look in your Bible, you'll see that the first word is in all caps. And we've talked about this before. That's identifying that this is God's proper name or God's personal name. It's made up of four consonants referred to as the tetragrammaton, and it's Y-H-W-H, most accurately pronounced as Yahweh, probably most popularly pronounced as Jehovah. It's God's personal name, and it means the eternal one, the one who exists, the one who has always been, who always will be and currently is. He is the I am, that's what his name means. And so when you see Lord in all caps in your Old Testament, it's God's personal name. It's written over 6,500 times in the Old Testament. So keep your eyes open for when Lord is in all caps. It's speaking of Yahweh, God's personal name. Notice it says, the Lord said to my Lord, that second word, Lord, it's a capital L, but then it's small O-R-D. And that is the Hebrew word Adonai. And that's simply the Hebrew word for master or Lord. And so you have here Yahweh saying to my Lord. And remember, David is the author. So David is the one saying, Yahweh, the, the personal name of God said to my, David as he's speaking, said to my Lord. And then he goes on to say, what he said. Before we get to that though, let me point this out to you. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is dealing with the religious leaders and they so often want to try and trap him in the things that he's saying. And from very early days when uh, I was a Christian, I just used to marvel at how Jesus would respond to the religious leaders because they wanted so desperately to trap him, but they couldn't do it. He always, you know, it's either A or B, black or white, and Jesus somehow would come out with with an answer C instead of A or B. And in doing so, it's like he would put them in their place. Remember the time where they were saying, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Should we pay taxes or should we not pay taxes? And if he says, yeah, go ahead and pay taxes, then the religious people are going to be upset because it's like, no, we're not supposed to have any pagan king over us. We're not supposed to give them our money and and give them our honor. But if he says, don't pay taxes, then they're gonna go right to the Romans and get Jesus in trade. He says not to pay any taxes to anybody. Remember what he said? He said, whose image is on the coin? Well, Caesar's. Well, if it's Caesar's, give it to him. But give to God the things that are God's, whose image is stamped upon man. We're made in the image of God. And the whole idea was, is if they had given themselves to God, if they had been faithful to him, they wouldn't be in the position they are. They wouldn't be under Rome's thumb at that time. They would be a sovereign and a free nation. And so in giving, not A or B, but giving C, he he expounds upon it so much and shows them This is why you're in the position you're in. And so in the Matthew chapter 22, you have uh, the religious leaders that are trying to trip Jesus up in so many different ways. So the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, all trying to trap Jesus in what he said. 
And then finally, Jesus, after they had finished speaking, finally, Jesus spoke in Matthew 22, beginning from verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And, and they were accurate in that. The Christ or the Messiah, Christ would be the, out of the Greek, Christos and Messiah, Mashiach out of the Hebrew, the anointed one, the Messiah. Whose son is he? And they said, well, he's David's son. And that's accurate. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised that David was going to have a son and that son would reign upon his throne forever. And so they accurately said, well, it's, it's David's son. But then Jesus said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord saying, and then he quotes our passage here, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Again, he just stops them, but it's a good point. David is the king that all other kings were measured by. He's the king of Israel. How can he refer to his son as Lord, my Lord? Yeah, you know, even today we wouldn't refer to our kids that way, right? And so how does he do that? Well, the answer is that David's son is more than just a man. You know, and I think, again, that's what Jesus is trying to point out to them. The son of David, the Messiah, he's more than just a man. He is God in human flesh. And that's what the scriptures bear out. Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and they shall call his name Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is who the Messiah is. He's more than just a man. This is how David can call him Lord because of who he is. Is he human? Yes. Is he God? Yes. He is the God man, if you will. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Isn't that cool? Yes, he is the descendant of David. He's his offspring, but he's also the source of David because of who he is. He is the eternal son of God. And so our passage quoted by Jesus, once again, to silence the Pharisees and also to, I think, enlighten them as to just who the son of David is, the Messiah. So the Lord said to my Lord, Psalm 110, Yahweh said to my Adonai. Before we move on to what he said, I just want to say one more thing. The word said, the Lord said, is the word that's used hundreds of times in the Old Testament for thus says the Lord. It's when that expression, that oracle of God is being stated forth. And most of the times it's used by the prophets himself in regards to what the Lord is saying. Jameson Fawcett and Brown's commentary says of this word said, literally this is a saying of the Lord, a formula used in prophetic or other solemn or expressed declarations. And so this is God, this is Yahweh saying to David's Adonai, this oracle, this statement. And do you get the picture of, of really who's speaking here? If Jesus, the son, is David's Adonai, then Yahweh, you have the father speaking to the son. Does that make sense here? So the father speaking to the son, and this is the oracle that's being stated. And he is the one that is speaking, that David is recording this 
in the first four verses. What does he say? He says, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Sit at my right hand. The idea of the right hand is the place of exaltation and power. We use the phrase today when we talk about this is my right hand man right here. This is the guy who's, who's in charge. This speaks of the exaltation of Jesus after his death and resurrection and his ultimate triumph over his enemies. In Acts chapter two, on the day of Pentecost, Peter quotes Psalm 110 in reference to Jesus' ascension and subsequent sending of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember when Jesus was with his disciples? He said, it's to your advantage that I go away because if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit will not come. Well, after Jesus died and he made atonement for the sin of the world, he rose from the dead and he exalted, I'm sorry, he ascended into heaven, exalted at the Father's right hand. And it's then that he sent back the Holy Spirit as recorded in Acts chapter two. And the birth of the church began at that moment. So this is Peter's opportunity to have this platform to be able to preach Jesus to the people that are at the Feast of Pentecost. It says in Acts chapter two, verse 32, Peter speaking, this Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. And you remember the story in Acts chapter two, the people marveled when they saw the disciples speaking in these languages that really only they could understand because people came from all over the Roman Empire to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. And they had the common Greek language, but they also had their dialects from back home. And here the disciples, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They come out speaking in other tongues that these people recognize. And they say they're, they're declaring the wonderful works of God. And that's how this, this audience was brought forth so Peter could take the opportunity to say, this is what that was. This is what's taking place right here. And he had the opportunity to tell them about Jesus. And so he went on to say, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, and quotes our passage, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He gives the scriptural reference, first of all, for what's taking place. And then he says, this is to fulfill what we see in Psalm 110. He has ascended to the place of power and authority and has now sent back the Holy Spirit. And Peter again uses that as a platform to preach Jesus. That's one of the places that, another one of the places this passage is quoted. Psalm 110 is also quoted in Hebrews chapter one. And in that context, it's showing that Jesus is superior to the angels. The book of Hebrews is written to Jewish people and the author of Hebrews is trying to convince them that Jesus is better than what they have. And he starts with saying Jesus is better than the angels. And he goes on to say that Jesus is better than Moses and that Jesus' priesthood is better than that of Aaron. And Jesus' covenant, the new covenant, is better than the old covenant. So he's seeking to, to show them a better way in Hebrews. And in Hebrews chapter one, this is where it's quoted in relation to the angels. Hebrews 1 through 13, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand? till I make your enemies your footstool. Sit at the place of, of power and authority until your enemies are subjugated under your feet. 
So a number of passages that we see where Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. Does God have a right hand? <laughs> is God a man? He's not a man, is he? So this is again what's called an anthropomorphism. It's attributing human characteristics to deity. So this is a way just of saying, this is the place of honor. This is the, the place of power and authority. And virtually every place uh, that you see this, where Jesus is at the right hand of God, virtually every place he's seated at the right hand. It's like mission accomplished. It is finished. He is taking care of the issue of sin. He laid his life down so that we can be forgiven of our sin. And having done that, he rose victorious from the grave. He ascended to the place of power and authority. Again, virtually every single place that you see it, Jesus is seated at the right hand. There's only one place I can think of where he's not seated, but he's standing. And that's when he's welcoming the first martyr of the Christian church into heaven. You remember Stephen? Stephen's preaching boldly and they come at him, they stop their ears and they come at him and they begin stoning him to death. And as they're stoning him to death, Stephen says, look, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. It's as if Jesus stood up and said, well done, good and faithful servant and, and welcomes him in to his presence. Isn't that sweet? And anyway, uh, you get the idea of our passage right here. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Adonai, sit at my right hand, the place of power and authority, till I make your enemies your footstool. And the idea is until the enemies are subjugated. The footstool denotes the placing of the foot on the necks of the enemy. And the idea is the utter defeat or complete vanquishing of the enemy. The Apostle Paul speaks of this complete victory of Christ over his enemies in 1 Corinthians 1525, where he says, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. And this ultimately will be seen when he comes at his second coming, when he comes to put an end to the battle of Armageddon, the campaign of Armageddon, where he comes to turn this upside down world right side up. It's been upside down since Genesis chapter three, the fall of man, but he's returning again. He's coming back again to turn this world right side up and to set up his kingdom. And it's at that time, he's going to put an end to man's ungodly rule upon this earth. As you look forward to that day when he's coming, you know, we're in an election year right now. And it's like, who are we going to, what choices do we have? You know, who are we going to vote for uh, as it comes to the election? When he returns, there's not going to be an election. Okay. We're not going to have some people going, I'm going to vote for Jesus. Well, I don't know if I'm going to vote for him. You know, he's coming back and it's going to be a theocracy. He, God, is going to rule and he's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem, Israel. In Revelation chapter 19, where it speaks about his second coming, the apostle John writes, and I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness, he judges and makes war. When Jesus comes the second time, he's coming as the conquering king. When he came the first time, he came as the suffering servant. He came to accomplish a mission, and that is the salvation of the lost. He laid his life down so that we can be forgiven. He died where we deserve to die. He took care of that when he came at his first coming, but when he comes at his second coming, he's coming to set up his kingdom and to be the king of kings. And notice it says in Revelation 19, verse 14, and the armies in heaven, 
clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. The armies, plural. I believe it is referring to the angel armies that will come with him, the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies. But I also believe we have a hint as to who else might be with him in those armies. Notice it says that the armies are clothed in fine linen. Just a few verses before that, we're introduced to the wife of the lamb. First of all, who is the lamb of God? Jesus. Who is the wife of the lamb? The church is, like we read about her as the bride of Christ, but now the marriage has taken place. She's now the wife of Christ or the wife of the lamb. And it says that she is clothed in fine linen. And then it says the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints, of the believers. And so we've got a hint, I think, as to who these armies are made up of. I think the, the heavenly hosts, the angels, but also those believers that have gone before that are now in those immortal bodies. Isn't that a cool thing to think about coming with Jesus? And he really, in reality, it's not like it's gonna be a battle, I hope he wins. You know, It's gonna be speaking forth the word, the sword that proceeds out of his mouth, speaking forth the word, and he's gonna, again, take care of those who have chosen, unfortunately, to be against him. So. As we read on in this passage, notice it says in verse two, the Lord Yahweh shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. The rod, the scepter of your strength, your power in ruling out of Zion. Zion's synonymous with Jerusalem. Rule in the midst of your enemies. When Jesus returns, he's going to set up his kingdom. He's going to be ruling from Jerusalem, Israel. Notice verse three, your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. What is a volunteer? Somebody who has to do it? Some, somebody who willingly gives themselves. Remember, Paul referred to himself as a bond servant of Jesus Christ, a willing slave for life, willingly giving himself. And I think it's speaking about his army right here. I, th I'm think I think it's speaking about those who have made the choice, the willing choice, I wanna be with you. I wanna give my life to you. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness, the set-apartness, the holiness, from the womb of the morning, the birth of a brand new age when he returns. You have the dew of your youth, the, the freshness, again, the beginning of that young, good-looking army that's coming back with our king, amen? So anyway, verses one through three speak of Jesus as the king, again, quoted so many times in the New Testament. Then here in verse four, we see him as the priest. Now, this is kind of interesting in and of itself because when you go back to ancient Israel, you either had a king or you had a priest. You didn't have the, the same person in both offices, okay? But here we see the same person in both offices, both king and priest. As it says in verse four, the Lord has sworn. Notice again, it's all caps. So we started out in verse one, David writing this down, the Lord Yahweh said to my Adonai, and then verse two, Yahweh shall send the rod of your Adonai, the son's strength out of Zion, out of Jerusalem. And then verse four, the Lord Yahweh has sworn and will not relent. He's taken an oath. He's not going to change his mind. You and again, this is Adonai, this is the son. You are a priest, and the key word is forever. You are a priest forever 
according to the order of Melchizedek. Now there's two things that I wanna bring out that I think are brought out from this passage as we look at it. One of them is what I camped on just for a second. It's an eternal priesthood. It's not a temporal priesthood, like the priesthood of Israel where Aaron ruled for a while, but then he died. And then you get another priest after Aaron. He lives forever. So it's an eternal priesthood, which is key, which we'll see in just a moment. And also what I touched on about the two offices. He is both king and he is priest. And I think that's the idea of both of these, where it says, according to the order of Melchizedek. We first read about Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. In fact, that's really the only place we read about Melchizedek is in Genesis 14. He's referenced here in Psalm 110. And then this passage, verse four, is quoted in the book of Hebrews in uh, the New Testament. So back in Genesis chapter 14, we see Melchizedek coming out to meet Abraham after the slaughter of the kings uh, when he went out to rescue Lot. So Abraham's nephew, Lot, he makes his way down to Sodom, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, wicked place. God is going to judge the place. Anyway, these kings come and they attack Sodom and they take the spoils of Sodom. They take Lot and his family and, and, they, and they leave. And so Abraham hears of it. He gets over 300 of his fighting men that are with him and he goes up and he rescues Lot and he gets the spoils. He conquers the king, kings and, and as he's coming back, the king of Sodom comes out to receive the, the people and the spoils, but also Melchizedek comes out. And Melchizedek is not from Sodom, he's from Salem. It says in Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him a tithe of all. Now notice this Melchizedek. He's the king of Salem, do you see that? So he's a king, but you also notice he's the priest of God Most High. So Melchizedek is a king priest. His name, Melchizedek, means, means king of righteousness, the meaning of his name. His name means king of righteousness. He's the king of Salem, ancient Jerusalem. Salem, shalom means peace. So he's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. He brings out bread and wine, which we would know as the elements of communion. The priest of God most high, and he blesses Abraham. Now Abraham's a great man, but you have an even greater that's blessing him. And Abraham gives him 10% of everything he just got and gives that to him. So what we're seeing here is the order of Melchizedek. This type of a priesthood would be that of a king priest, but also the eternal aspect of that. And that's what we see brought out in the book of Hebrews when the author of Hebrews is going back to this passage to make the case again, remember Hebrews, Jesus is better than, Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than Moses. His priesthood is better than Aaron's priesthood, his covenant better than the old covenant. So in Hebrews chapter seven, we see him reaching back the author to what we just read in Genesis. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a 10th part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, again, that's Melchizedek's name, Melech, 
Zedek, king, righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, like we'd mentioned. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God remains a priest continually. Wow, who is this guy, huh? I mean, that's, that's pretty, pretty impressive to read that. So his name means king of righteousness. He's the king of Salem, so he's the king of peace. And of course, Abraham, he was blessed by Abraham. Abraham gives him a 10th of all. But notice he has no mom or dad. He has no genealogy, no beginning of days, nor end of life. So most see Melchizedek. Yeah, I'll just give you the, the facts here. Most see Melchizedek as a type of Christ, okay? King, priest, the whole idea of without father, without mother, without beginning of days, it's, it's like the Bible just all we, what we read is what we have in Genesis. That's all we have about him. We don't have his mom and dad were so-and-so and he came from this city. This is where he was born. We don't have any of that information. So people will say it's an argument from silence. The Bible doesn't say uh, who his mom and dad was. And so in that sense, he becomes a, a type of Christ. And of course, uh, they would uh, lay the most weight on the last phrase, he's made like the son of God. The words made like literally are to make a copy, which would back up the idea that the author of Hebrews is using Melchizedek as a type of Christ. And that very well might be the way to interpret that. Others see Melchizedek as a Christophany. And that would be an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. Again, it's interesting to note that his name means the king of righteousness, that he is the king of Salem, which means peace, and also that he brought to Abraham those elements of communion, bread and wine. And so, you know, you can kind of take your pick on that, what you think of it. The point that the author is making here is that Jesus' priesthood is according to the order of Melchizedek, by quoting verse four of Psalm 110. You're a priest forever according to the order. Melchizedek's type of priesthood, not Aaron's type of priesthood, but Melchizedek's, which is that of an eternal priesthood. So jumping ahead to verses seven, or verse 11 in Hebrews chapter seven, it says, therefore if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. What further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? If what Aaron was doing was sufficient to bring us all the way home, then why do we need, why do we need Psalm 110 verse four? Why do we need a, another to come forward according to a different order? And the answer to that simply put is perfection cannot be through Aaron's priesthood. For one, Aaron died. And then it was his son, Eleazar, that becomes priest. And then Eleazar died, and then it was his son, Phineas. And like, if you have a good high priest, that's awesome. But what if you get down into the day of Eli and Eli's sons, and you go, oh, this is not good. The key thing with Jesus is he's good, he's great, and he lives forever. In Hebrews 7, 15 through 17, and yet it is far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And the value of that endless life in being a priest 
we see in verses 23 to 25. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, referring to Jesus now, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The role of the priest was the go-between, was it not? He was the one who would go before God on behalf of men. When Israel, they would bring a lamb to the priest, that lamb would be slaughtered, and then it was the priest who would offer up the animal. He was the go-between, the mediator, if you will, and and the priest was also the one who would go uh, before the people on behalf of God. It was the priest that would go out and, and give the priestly blessing to the people. The Bible tells us that there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the one because of what he did in coming to this earth, where he could take one hand and put it upon a holy God, and he can take the other hand and put it on a sinful humanity, and he can reconcile them. How? Through the blood of his cross. It was his death that was able to bring us, a lost humanity, into the presence of God so that we could be saved. The fact that his priesthood is eternal, he ever lives. He lives forever in order to be able to secure that that will always be accepted into God's presence. And that again, that's the point that the author of Hebrews is making, and he's bringing Psalm 110 to really drive that point home. Now, we see Jesus as both king and priest. He's coming to set up his kingdom, and he's coming to put an end to the chaos that we experience day by day that we're living in. So we move on from verse four, and we look at verses five and six. The Lord is at your right hand. Now, I don't want to get too like academic on this or anything, but the word Lord is Adonai right here. So the question comes, who's speaking at this point? And I'm just going to give you my opinion and other comments. But most of the commentaries I read, I didn't even address it. You know why? It doesn't really matter. It's, it's more what it's being stated, not so much who is speaking it. But I think at this point, as other commentators do, in verses one through four, yes, David's the human author, but he's recording what Yahweh has said. Yahweh is speaking to Adonai. And I think from verse five, we have the psalmist, David, speaking to the father, saying Adonai is at your right hand, which is exactly what we read in verse one, wasn't it? Where the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And it's like he's state, excuse me, stating what he is going to do. The Lord is at your right hand, the place of power and authority. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. Literally, he will break the kings in pieces in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies he shall execute, again, literally break in pieces the heads of many countries. And this is so clearly seen at the second coming of Christ, where the kings of the earth and the mighty men are gathered to the battle of that great day of God Almighty, the battle of Armageddon. And this is what it has to say again in Matthew 19, beginning from verse 11, and I'm actually gonna turn back there because I don't have very many scriptures here, where John wrote, now I saw heaven opened, And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Again, remember, he's coming as the conquering king, but he's coming in righteousness. What he does is right. God is love, absolutely. Where do we see his love? At the cross. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not what? Why would they perish? Because we're sinners. We need a savior. So if a person chooses to not come to Jesus, God is not only love, but he's also just. So justice will be served. And what we get in Revelation 19 is a picture of that justice taking place when Jesus comes at his second coming. Again, the armies of the earth are setting themselves against him to try and take him out. And all he has to do is speak the word when he comes. And this is what it refers to when it refers of all of the death and so forth. So it goes on to say in verse 16, and he has on his robe and on his, and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone and the rest were killed, notice, with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. He simply is going to speak forth the word and it's going to be the end of man's ungodly rule upon the earth. It's gonna be where Jesus turns his upside down world right side up. He's gonna take it from where it fell in Genesis three and turn it around and he will, he will rule with the rod of his power, the scepter of his strength from Jerusalem, Israel over the world. It's similar to another Psalm that we studied back in Psalm chapter two, again, a messianic Psalm. In Psalm chapter two, verse, verses eight and nine, It says, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. When this is quoted in the the book of Revelation concerning Jesus, it uses the, the word rule. You shall rule them with a rod of iron and it can be taken both ways. But we see the, the, the emphasis that's placed here. He's going to break them in pieces. And again, these are the ones that have so rejected him, they're getting their gun sights on him when he's returning. Can you imagine how futile that is to put your gun sights on Jesus when he's returning at his second coming with his armies? And so it speaks again of his return and his setting up of his kingdom. The king, the priest, finally in verse seven, it says he shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. I think in essence, it's saying battle's over, okay? Victory accomplished. He'll drink by the wayside. The lifting up of the head, the exaltation, Jesus conquered sin. He'll reign as the conquering king. We see this both in the Old and the New Testament, predicted in the Old Testament, also in the New Testament, where Jesus, he paid the price. He he did what was needed to secure our salvation. He died where you and I deserve to die. In Isaiah 53, it's, it's one of the, 
clearest passages, prophecies that we see of, of his substitutionary death, where he's led like a lamb to the slaughter, and, and he doesn't say anything uh, like a sheep before it shears. And as it says in Isaiah chapter 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. The, the whole reason he went through what he did was, was for us, not for himself. He, he was the substitute. He died where I deserve to die. Well, in Isaiah 53, as it goes all the way through that, it closes out again with like this exaltation. In Isaiah 53, verse 12, it says, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. This is the one who was silent before its shears, the one who died the substitutionary death. And so you can kind of again see who's speaking in this. This is the father speaking of the son and the work of the son. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Because he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressor, transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Can you see that in the last verse of Isaiah 53 where he's going to be exalted? Why? Because of what he did. Well, what did he do? He bore the sin of the world. He, he bore the sin so that they can be what? They can be brought to salvation. You know what's neat about this? I, years ago, w was doing um, word studies through this. And as many of you know, the, the word sin, oftentimes um, it, it's stated that it's taken from an archer's game. So you have a target, you have the archer with the bow and arrow, and he shoots at the target, but if he misses, he's sinned. And that's the idea. God's mark, his standard is perfection, and we've all missed it. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so you'll hear the word sin um, described that way, and it, which is the case. So he bore the sin. We all have missed the mark, if you will. And then when it says, and made intercession for the transgressors, the word intercession, you'll love this. It means to help them to reach the mark. <laughs> and that's what his intercession did, right? We, we can't make the mark, but through what he did, he has helped us to reach the mark. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God is so good, is he not? So, and again, in many places, just off of my memory, Philippians 2, where it speaks of him by very nature being God, emptied himself, came to this earth, suffered and died. And then what does it say? And so God has also highly exalted him and given him the name above every name. And so you see his work and then you see his exaltation. And I think that's what we see right here again in Psalm 110. He is the king. He is the eternal intercessor, priest. He has gained the victory. That's who we serve. Amen. That's all I've got. Um, <laughs> that's enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> the key thing to walk away with, yeah, the key thing to walk away with is just how great of a God we serve. You know, how much he loves us. It's seen throughout the pages of scripture. And again, the invitation, if anybody's here who's never trusted Jesus as their savior, it's the whole reason he came was so that you can have life. What does it take? It takes humbling yourself and, and acknowledging, God, I'm a sinner. I've missed the mark of perfection and I need 
I need a savior. I need a redeemer to be able to help me to make it there, to carry me all the way through to the end. And the way we do that is by humbling ourselves and saying, God, I need you. I trust you, Jesus, as my Lord and Savior. And if that's you and that's what you want to do, please do that. Reach out to him. Please come forward. Pray with us at the close. We'd love to do that uh, with you, okay? Let's thank the Lord. Father, we thank you for this time. We could be in your word, truly filled with life and power and the, the truth of who you are. And Lord, we thank you for that. And I, I just pray for everyone who's here, Lord, that we would, we would be drawn closer to your heart. For those of us who are called by your name, who've, who've received that, that gift of eternal life that you've extended to us. Lord, please help us just to recognize a little, just a little bit more just how good you are and just how much you love us. And Lord, may you take our lives. May we offer them up in such a, um, a, a way of surrender that you would take us and use us that others might know as well for your kingdom, for your glory. And Father, if there's any here who don't know you, may they, may they lift their heads up and reach out to you this day, oh God. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.